All right, we are going to turn our attention to God's Word, and so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to John 19, and uh, I'm going to read uh, from verse 27, uh, sorry, verse 25 on. Um, for the sake of my attention span, could we in this room sit still? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. <laughs> Everybody else, you're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we are in a series where we are looking at the last words of Jesus from the cross. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he utters kind of seven uh, final statements. And so we are looking at the third of those this morning. And so let me invite you to stand with me in your living room, in your pajamas, wherever you find yourself now, as we give our attention to God's word. John 19 Starting at verse 25 in my Bible, that's on page 905. I have no idea if that helps you out at all. Let's read God's Word. It says this, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's uh, John, the author of this gospel, doesn't identify himself by name, but he calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And this is God's word. You may be seated. <coughs> Famous last words. I would like to thank the Academy for my Lifetime Achievement Award that I will eventually get. These are the final words of Donald O'Connor. Donald O'Connor is perhaps not a household name, but he was a, a famous singer, dancer, and actor in uh, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. He probably most famously was in Singing in the Rain where he uh, rather remarkably uh, tap danced and, and did a couple backflips off of a wall. Um, in the, uh, he, he was actually supposed to be in White Christmas, I think, with Bing Crosby, but he got pneumonia, and so he was replaced uh, by somebody else at the last minute. But a uh, prolific uh, movie star. In the 60s, he was honored with two, uh, not just one, but two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, he, was, he was that well known. Show business was his life, and he believed that it would bring him happiness in life and significance and leave uh, and, and shape his, his, uh, his legacy. And so even as he faced death, his thoughts were still about what he wanted to achieve in life, about his legacy. And so his final words on his deathbed, he said, I would like to thank the Academy for my Lifetime Achievement Award that I will eventually get. He died, I think, in the early 2000s and has still not been honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Academy of Motion Pictures. Well, we're looking at the famous last words of Jesus, these seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And this statement from Jesus, I think, if we're honest, is really quite strange. And um, I think that if we don't pause to ask, what is Jesus saying here? We, we, we have, a, we have uh, run the risk of just rushing right past it, saying, that was really weird. Why in his final moments is Jesus entrusting the care of his mother, Mary, to one of his best friends, 
and, uh, and faithful followers. My hunch is that for people who, maybe if you don't consider yourself a Christian or you uh, are not a person who's been in church uh, very regularly or uh, if you're the sort of person who, who doesn't read the Bible regularly, that you probably often encounter Jesus' words and think, that's really strange. That's really shocking. What is he saying? But for people who do go to church frequently, myself included, I would say, we, we can get to the point where the words of Jesus seem very familiar. And uh, when we encounter words of Jesus that don't make sense, we don't really take the time to understand what they mean, and we just rush past them. We rarely get to the point where Jesus' words surprise us. And so it might be easy to rush past these words and miss what Jesus is saying, but I want you to take Jesus' words seriously. Jesus occasionally makes statements that are really shocking. And if we want to take Jesus at his word, and if we want to uh, be people who claim to be followers of Jesus, we need to take, uh, the mo- take a moment to pause and say, what in the world is Jesus saying here? What in the world is Jesus saying here? And so it's important for us to slow down and consider what Jesus' words might mean when they run counter to the ways that we've come to think about him. And what I want to suggest to you today is that just as Donald O'Connor gets to the end of his life and his thoughts go to his own legacy, in a similar way, Jesus, at the end of his life, is, thinking, uh, is speaking about his own legacy. But unlike Donald O'Connor, Jesus isn't thinking of his own glory and reputation. Jesus is rather thinking about his mission and his people and how the, uh, the mission, this vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus has enacted in his life is going to continue on after his death. And so in other words, this is what Jesus is doing here. He is establishing his church as the new family. And that's really the one point that I want to make uh, this morning. Jesus is saying here that home is not where your relatives are. Home is where God's people are. Jesus is establishing his church as the new family, the new humanity, the new people of God. And I realize that that's probably not very clear at first when we read what Jesus is saying. So let me unpack uh, what he's saying here. And, And fundamental to understanding what he's saying is the conviction that he's got to be saying something. He's not just randomly babbling some words at the end of his life. And so if he means something, what does he actually mean? And there's really three ways that you can take these words of Jesus. And the first is uh, what, what is typically taken, uh, the way that this is, uh, these words are typically interpreted by the Roman Catholic tradition, which is to in some way elevate the role of Mary in you know, kind of the scheme of salvation in the life of Jesus. And I, I don't believe that's what is happening here. I'm not really going to address that because I think that there's just a, a better way to understand this. But the second option is, is the way that most Protestants um, read these words. And, and basically, I think uh, the way that these words are often understood by Protestant Christians is that Jesus is making arrangements to care for his mom after his death. Uh, Joseph, Jesus, you know, her human father, um, Joseph, the mother of Mary, Joseph, who figures prominently, or or the husband of Mary, rather, um, Joseph, the husband of Mary, figures prominently in the the nativity uh, stories, you know, the advent stories, the birth of Jesus. 
uh, is wholly absent from the uh, ministry and crucifixion uh, of Jesus. And so scholars believe that in all likelihood, Joseph had uh, died by uh, this point, by the time that uh, Jesus was crucified. And Jesus is dying now, and he doesn't want Mary to become a destitute widow, and so he's looking at John and saying, hey, John, when I'm gone, would you please look after my mom? That's, I think, the way that most Protestants read these words. But the problem with that is that we know that Jesus had other siblings, that Mary had other children. We know, at the very least, that Jesus had a brother named James. Um, but the, the New Testament hints that he, he probably had other siblings as well. Um, and so if this is just about Jesus making arrangements to care for his mom after his death, it would be far more logical to expect that Jesus' other siblings would care for their mom now that uh, her husband is gone and now that Jesus is gone. Why doesn't Jesus just go with that? The other thing that we know about Jesus' siblings is that they didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. They had grown up with him, and they had no idea who he really was. And in Mark 3, it says that when Jesus began his ministry, and he began calling disciples to follow him, his family thought he was crazy. And uh, in Mark 3, I think it's verse 21, it says that when his family heard what Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus, you're embarrassing us. Jesus, please be quiet. They didn't have any idea who Jesus really was. And while we know that James, the brother of Jesus, after the resurrection, um, comes to faith in his brother, in Jesus, to see him as who he is, the Messiah. And James eventually becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem and writes the New Testament book of James. Uh, it wasn't until after the resurrection, it wasn't until later, that Jesus' siblings understood who, who, who he was and, and put their faith in him. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is dying on the cross and as he's dying, Mary is the only believer in her family. And so Jesus looks to John, the beloved disciple, and he says, John, I want you to take care of my mom. And what he's saying to both of them is that it is more important for Mary and for us to receive spiritual care in the church than it is even for us to maintain relational connection with our biological families. He's making a radical statement about the priority of the church. The, the church is the new humanity of God. The church is the family of God. The church is the primary gathering place of God's people. Jesus is reordering our, our, uh, our priorities. Family in the kingdom of God is the church, he's saying. We see this play out almost immediately in the book of Acts after the, the resurrection as the, as the church begins to gather in Jerusalem and then, you know, in Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth to care for one another in startling ways. Jesus is saying home is not where your relatives are. Home is where God's people are. He's making a radical statement here to us. And it's both a challenge uh, and it's a comfort to us. And so... Uh, that's what the passage is saying, and that's, that's the one point that I want to make. But I want to kind of unpack this in three ways in terms of what this means for us in our lives. First, what Jesus is saying about the priority of the people of God, the church as the 
family of God is a picture of grace. It's a picture of the grace of God that comes to us undeserved because what it says to us is that no matter what we've done or where we've come from, we enter God's family apart from bloodlines. That pedigree does not get you into the family of God. Your background does not get you into the family of God. Nothing you do, nothing that you are, no privileged birth uh, earns you a place in God's kingdom. But the inverse is also true. There is no uh, birth that excludes you from the kingdom of God either. Not even Mary can claim to be a child of God through her biological connection to Jesus. It is purely of grace. We receive God's favor not through our own efforts and not through biology or through blood. We receive God's favor through adoption, through adoption into the family of God. The only Son of God lived the life that we should have lived, and he, here we see him on the cross dying the death that we deserved, and he did all of this on your behalf in your place, and what that means for you is that you do not have to relate to God as an orphan. You know, as an orphan who is always wondering where his next meal or her next meal is going to come from. As an orphan who, when a prospective parent comes into the scene, is sort of putting on their, you know, putting their best foot forward, sort of subtly begging for scraps. You don't have to uh, relate to God that way hoping for God's leftovers that he might in pity smile upon you no, those who are in Christ are not orphans but we are the daughters and the sons of God Almighty by adoption because of Jesus' life and his death God looks upon you just like he looks upon his own son and so when God looks upon you by his grace he welcomes you into his family and treats you just like he treats his own son. This is a beautiful picture of God's grace. No matter what you have done or where you have come from, there is room for you in the family of God. That is good news. There's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter where you're from. It's a beautiful picture for the people uh, of this world that you are a member of the family of God by grace. Secondly, this passage shows us the radical calling of God's people. What does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to be the people of God? Do you see the radical, the, the, the audacity of Jesus here? I mean, think about what Jesus says to John and to Mary. He doesn't say, hey, John, could you run home real fast and ask your wife and your children if it's okay if my mom moves in with you guys now? Uh, he just says... This is your mother now. This is your son now. Uh, Jesus is, is calling them to this. And John adds, um, John adds, he finishes the, you know, the last verse, says this, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Not like a month later, she moved in. <laughs> the next day, a couple weeks later, uh, from that hour, Mary goes and lives in John's home. One of the things that we see consistently throughout the Bible is the way God calls his people radically in life-altering ways to give up natural ties to follow him. Uh, if you think back to Abraham in Genesis 12, you know, God calls <coughs> Abraham to leave everything he has ever known to follow him into an unknown land so that Abraham might be a blessing to the whole world. You see God calling Moses out of the comfort of Pharaoh's house 
into obscurity in preparation to lead God's people from slavery into freedom. You see in Rahab and in Bathsheba and in Ruth, all of them ordinary women that God calls to leave their homes, to follow him to foreign countries, to a foreign country and uses them in extraordinary ways. To be sure, Jesus isn't saying that biological family is irrelevant. You know, the, it's the same God who speaks these words, who also, you know, in the Ten Commandments says, honor your father and mother. It's the same God who speaks these words, who says in Ephesians 6, fathers do not exasperate your children. So Jesus is not saying that biological family is irrelevant. But what Jesus is saying is my people and my mission are united together. And so it is more important for Mary to be connected to John and through him to the church than it is for Mary to maintain natural relational ties with her biological family. It's a radical call with which God calls those he loves. And he calls you and he calls me in exactly the same way. Thirdly, Jesus' words challenge our individualism. Jesus' words are a challenge to our individualistic way of living uh, in the United States, in the West. This is telling us that what ultimately defines us is not the recognition that we receive in this life or that we hope to be bestowed upon us after death. But the thing that defines us is our connection to God through Jesus Christ. That is what defines you as a person. So for individualistic Americans, this reshapes our priorities because I think that for individualistic Americans, uh, those of us who are Christians would say, our, my priorities look something like this. God, of course, we would say he's at the top. And then family, and then church maybe. Maybe church is further down the list. But something like that. But the priorities of the kingdom look like this. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then think about yourself. God, neighbor, then self. Those are the kingdom priorities. Tim Chester in his book, Total Church, he says this. He says, the prevailing view of life today is that of an individual standing on his or her own, heroically juggling various responsibilities, family, friendships, career, leisure, chores, decisions, and money. We could also add social responsibilities like political activities, campaigning organizations, community groups, and school associations. From time to time, the pressure overwhelms us and we drop one or more of the balls all too often, says Tim Chester. The church becomes one of those balls that we drop. He suggests that rather than thinking of our lives as a juggling act where we're trying to keep all of these things in check, or uh, I like to think of it as a, uh, as a game of whack-a-mole where we're just taking care of whatever it is that's popping up before us at the moment. Rather than thinking of our lives as a juggling act, this passage invites us to think of our lives like a wheel where the various activities of our lives are like spokes on a wheel, and Jesus and his body, the church, is the hub at the center that holds everything together. I don't know if you saw this a couple of weeks ago, David Brooks, the um, author and New York Times um, columnist, um, did, that might have gotten tweaked, I don't know. We're okay. We're okay. <laughs> Still with me? We're good. 
David Brooks, the New York Times columnist and an author, uh, published an article in The Atlantic titled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. It's a fairly dramatic headline. Uh, I don't know if you read this article. It's fascinating. It's long. It's worth your time. But in this article, he says that the image of what we think of as the ideal family, mother, father, two and a half kids, and a white picket fence, uh, that's the image that we've come to think of as, as sort of the ideal picture of family. That that image was really only uh, re uh, a realistic norm in Western culture for a very, very short period of time. From 1950 to about 1965 was the only time that that was the dominant model of family. Before that time, uh, he says people lived in, in, in more like a clan or an extended family where you would have... Uh, grandparents and cousins and uh, you know aunts and uncles uh, sort of geographically living in a similar place and, and it created a network where if you lost a job there was always somebody there to care for you uh, that's the way people lived prior to World War II and then post 1965 uh, we now live in an altogether in a uh, different place um, again for a very short period of history that was the dominant model but the um, traditional nuclear family is no longer uh, the primary model. David Brooks reports that today less than a third of Americans live in a traditional, traditional two-parent nuclear family. And so for all the good that the family values movement did in the 80s and early 90s, perhaps one of the unintended consequences is that it contributed to the idolization of our children. Uh, so that's the challenge of this passage. But here's the comfort, here's the good news. The reality is that we don't live in that world. That fewer and fewer of us live um, in that, you know, what we think of as the ideal sort of a family. Um, and while some of us would say that we had a great family growing up, for many of us that's simply not the case. In Generation X, we have almost an entire generation who has not had that experience. Um, an entire generation who uh, largely were raised as latchkey kids, you know, watching MTV while their parents were at work. A generation who now feels uh, forgotten and overlooked, sandwiched between two much larger generations, and a generation that is longing for something that connects them. A generation, a people, a nation who feel spiritually homeless. And to those who feel spiritually homeless, the words of Jesus come as a breath of fresh air. The words of Jesus come and tell us that God is a host and he is welcoming you to his feast. The words of Jesus come and say that God is a father who welcomes you into his family, not as an observer, not as a guest, not as somebody spending you know, a meal together, but he welcomes you into his family as his child. So let me finish with this. All of this is incredibly relevant in a time of social distancing, isn't it? In a time when, through no choices of our own, we are isolated. Because what we're discovering is that there will be consequences to the coronavirus crisis uh, beyond just the health impact. Where the economic impact may be severe, where we are living with massive uncertainty, and it's exhausting. 
where um, where the emotional impact of living in this world is profound. And friends, what I want you to hear is you don't have to go through this alone. You don't have to go through this alone. Jesus is with you. And he has sent his spirit to live in you and to make the presence of God tangible in your life. Really what I'm talking about when I invite you to consider doing emotionally healthy spirituality with us is we want to equip you to experience the presence of God in the moment by moment of your life. And so if you're the sort of person like I have been for most of my life who knows true things about God and yet doesn't often know God, doesn't experience God, this is such an important resource for you to take advantage of. Jesus is with you. He has sent his spirit to live in you to make the presence of God a reality in your life. And he has sent his body, the church, into the world to be his hands and to be his feet. And so even now in this time of social distancing, we are here to provide community, to encourage each other, and to provide tangible help in any way that we can. So even though we may be isolated, we are not alone. So friends, the good news is this. God loves you. He is with you. And he has sent his church into the world to be his hands and his feet to make his love tangible to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness. That Jesus, when you were on the cross, you didn't think of saving yourself, but instead you gave your attention uh, to your family, to your immediate family, to your mother, but also by extension to us, your people, spread throughout the world uh, this morning, and yet called to be your hands and your feet to make your love real, present, and tangible in this world. Would you indwell us by your spirit and help us to be the people that you are calling us to be for the time that we're now living in. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.